Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's National Mission. We're here to come alongside you as we journey through life under the cross. What does it look like to care for our neighbors in body and soul? How do we tend to our own body and soul? How can we speak up for life? And finally, how do we share the faith with the next generation? Join us as we have these conversations and learn together. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer. My guest today is Daniel Weiss, and together we'll be taking up a topic that has been long neglected in Christian circles, and that is the issue of pornography and its pervasiveness today. Now, the very word itself may have some of you kind of squirming in your seats, but we will handle this topic and you, our listeners, with care. Daniel, welcome. Would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. It's just a great uh, opportunity to be on the program and to talk with your listeners about, like you said, a a tough topic, but a very important topic. Um, I have been working on issues related to sexuality and pornography for more than 20 years now. I got my start at Focus on the Family as a research analyst addressing pornography issues back in 2002 and have worked with that ministry for almost nine years before moving my family back to Wisconsin, where my wife and I both grew up. And I felt God calling me to continue that work that, that I've been doing at Focus to help Christians understand God's positive, beautiful design for sexuality and also help Christians and Christian leaders in particular understand how to address sexual brokenness with um, biblical truth and compassion. So now our our ministry is called Sexual Integrity Leaders, and we do that work with Christian leaders around the country. Then we have an annual summit. But these have been issues of importance ever since I started, and and certainly long before I even got into this work. Um, Pornography has been a threat to our culture and our families for, for many decades. Now, let's start by defining terms. Uh, How would you define pornography? How have you defined it in your work? Yeah, that's a great point, because what we found in some of the research is how you define pornography determines whether you think you're viewing it or not. Um, We use a term that uh, we've taken from a Christian counselor I've worked with. It's sexually explicit material that was produced or is intended to create sexual arousal. So it's sexually explicit, and its purpose is to create sexual arousal. Barna did some research with Covenant Eyes. Back in 2016, they released a report, and they said among U.S. teens and young adults, that's like 18 to 25, that age group, 70% of them felt that if you're looking at sexually explicit content for the purpose of sexual arousal, that counted as porn. So think about that. That's 30% of that age group that's looking at sexually explicit material for the purpose of sexual arousal, but does not call it porn. And so you have to understand as parents, you cannot assume that your children and you have the same definitions. It's worth talking it through and, and understanding what they believe pornography to be. Because again, the research found that kids may be looking at pornography in a group, like at someone's house, But because it's a group setting and not a solitary thing, they don't consider that to be looking at porn. So these definitions do matter, and it is especially important for parents to kind of clarify with their kids what they mean when they use the word pornography. How has pornography and its accessibility changed even in the last decade, the last 20 years or so? When I talk on these issues, 
there may be older folks in the crowd. And I think even younger people, younger parents still have this idea that, and less so for really new parents, but, but there's still this idea that we're talking about Playboy. We're talking about nude imagery or somehow some kind of nude video. Pornography has changed pretty dramatically since the 2000s back when the internet was just kind of launching in the late 90s and the early 2000s, that has opened up an entirely new world for distribution. And what pornographers found at that time is that the federal prosecutors were not enforcing obscenity laws. So it was a slow development of, of what we might call more just straight sex in the early 2000s once pornographers realized they weren't going to get prosecuted for obscenity they pushed the envelope quite a bit. And so now what's very common is very violent, very racist, very misogynistic type of content that really doesn't resemble a loving relationship in any way, shape, or form. It is very degrading, very cruel. It's almost uh, some journalist, a British journalist said, uh, porn is a war against the sexes by other means, and it is it is really that bad. And this is what, when kids are exposed to, they're not being exposed to simply sex between a, a man and a woman. They're being exposed to all kinds of violence and things that would not be considered healthy sexuality at all. What I'm wondering, too, is with the dawn of the Internet, uh, prior to that, maybe people would think of uh, pornography in terms of print media or old school VHS tapes where you'd have to go into some kind of blockbuster, go behind the curtain kind of thing, go through, check out. Now with the internet, it's at everyone's disposal. And it's not only uh, print media through publications, magazines, now it's also video streaming online, explicit content and images online. Would you also categorize imagery through words as pornography? Can a simple book without any kind of pictures be pornography? Yeah, I would personally consider written pornography to be categorized as pornography. I mean, our word pornography comes from the Greek and it literally means the writing of prostitutes. So pornography originally was in the written form. And one of the things the internet did that has absolutely reshaped our culture when it comes to pornography and sex is that there was a, a researcher that's since passed, Alvin Cooper, developed what he called the triple A effect, and that pornography online became accessible, affordable, and anonymous. And uh, my co-author and I in our book, we added another A, and it's accepting. The internet is very accepting of any kind of sexual question or desire. And so because people don't have, they can hide behind their screen and they're not being seen at the video store. They're not checking out pornographic materials in front of a mom with two kids who's just getting a family movie. That anonymity has allowed many more people who otherwise probably would not access porn to get involved with it. And many of them have you know, become addicted or habituated to it. So the internet has completely shaped our cultural understanding of sex and pornography in ways that previous generations would not have imagined even. So is that what has led to your fourth A, the accepting of it? 
Yeah. And that's just a point that, you know, our entire culture has become very accepting and actually celebrates what I think Christians might call broken sexuality or sexual confusion, because this is not what God designed us for, and it's not going to lead to human thriving, especially relational thriving. So whereas we see dangers in many of the cultural approaches to sexuality, uh, that's not what kids see when they go online. They can find any information they want. There's a high likelihood it's going to be incorrect or harmful uh, because the internet also doesn't really tell the truth and it has no accountability. Uh, so we don't really want the internet teaching our kids. We want parents to be in front of this, teaching them that there are misinformation, there is harmful content online and to be, and to be careful about it and know what to do if they do stumble on it. Because the internet is so accepting of questions, parents need to work really hard at normalizing these conversations at home and often much earlier than we think is needed just because of the level of exposure that kids have today. And when you say, you know, parents need to be aware of this, you have actually written a book for parents, and it's called Treading Boldly Through a Pornographic World, a Field Guide for Parents. Can you help to paint a picture for those who have not yet read your book, paint a picture of the problem that we're dealing with just statistically? What are we looking at? Yeah. So internet, like statistics and research on pornography, there used to be a lot more done by reputable companies like Pew Research Center and some online researchers. They don't do as much anymore. And I'm not sure why. I just want to say for the listeners, we probably don't have entirely accurate statistics anymore on this. The most recent research on the average age of first exposure is like a decade and a half old. I haven't found legitimate research that has replaced that. But at that time, you know, back in the 2000s to 2010s, the average age was 14, 14.8 for girls and 14.3 for boys. That means half of kids have seen pornography online prior to the age of 14. It's, there's a very good likelihood that number is lower now. We just don't know how much lower. But even that, um, if you think of a 14-year-old, that's a freshman in high school. Kids can have romantic feelings. They might have a kind of a boyfriend-girlfriend experience in middle school. But high school is when that really takes off. And so a lot of parents won't expect that they need to have that conversation much earlier. Most likely, I would recommend talking about pornography specifically before kids get into middle school or junior high. But they need to know because there's a very good likelihood, even at a Christian school or even at Christian youth groups, kids are being exposed to pornography from their friends on phones and tablets and things like that. You make a point to say in your book that this is not just a guy issue. This is tempting and affecting young girls, women as well. Yeah. And if you look at that, uh, just to refer back to that previous number, 14.3 is the average age of exposure for boys, but girls is only less than a half a year later. So they're not only getting exposed now, they are using it. Girls, young women today are using pornography actually in greater numbers than their parents' generation, the, their dads, actually. The pornography use and, and viewing is growing among teen girls and young women young adult women. And that's largely a function of our society. Um, pornography is widely accessible, but our society is 
widely accepting of it. And many of our popular celebrities talk about pornography as if it's a normal thing. They almost promote it. I recently read about a football player, a very famous football player who talks about wanting to be a porn star. So even our you know, role models in areas you wouldn't think of are embracing and promoting pornography. Pornography is, frankly, it's normalized for kids. They think this is normal sexuality. They think exposure to it is normal. Not all Christian kids, those numbers are a little skewed, um, where pornography use is, is less for Christian kids, but it's in this general ballpark. And so we can't assume that our kids are not going to want to look at this or are not going to be exposed to it. We have to assume they will, and we have to act accordingly as parents. That's my recommendation, at least. And you've made a point to say pornography is actually going out looking for your kids. Your kids don't necessarily have to go out with the aim of looking for it. It will find them. Why? How? What is it that the Internet has made it just in their faces? Yeah. And even going back to the beginning of of the Internet um, really becoming popular, pornographers were very savvy early on in using keyword searches. So they would load up a bunch of keywords that kids often used. I mean, Pokemon is one, Disney, Disney princesses. So kids using innocent internet searches would be exposed to these results that would pop up. That's another thing. We used to have pop-up ads. Those are, those are still a thing. I use pop-up ad blockers on our browsers, so we don't have that inadvertent exposure. But there are all kinds of tricks out there. The, the pornographers put links in gaming sites where young boys are particularly likely to go. Um, and the games don't have to be violent or sexualized for the pornographers to use those sites to trip kids up. So pornographers are very savvy. They have absolutely no moral basis or backbone here. They just want to make money. And if they can catch kids early on, they've got customer for life potentially. Because an addiction, especially for kids, is very hard to break. Our children are not meant to have this kind of sexual imagery. Actually, none of us are. Researchers call pornography a supernormal stimulus, meaning none of our brains are equipped or wired to handle this amount of sexual imagery in this kind of rapid fire, digitally accessible way. It's harmful for all of us, but it's particularly harmful for kids whose mental templates and mental filters and sexual templates haven't been completely formed yet. So pornography becomes the building block that informs how they understand sexuality, relationships, the body, marriage, family, all of that. You have a diagram that gives the percentage of adolescents actually seeking these pornographic images out, and then statistics about how often they just simply innocently come across them. And the statistic is, it's just absolutely alarming. At least once a month, 49% of kids will just come across it without going to look for it. And at least two times monthly, 21% of the time, they'll just come across it. Again, as you said, it's just, it's coming for us. We we have to be armed uh, with how to handle this or we will fall prey to this or let our kids fall prey. Yeah, and that's a point my co-author and I made in our book. It's it's not a question, especially for a Christian parent. Don't ask whether your kids are the type that you believe would go looking for this material. Ask this question. 
do you trust the internet to be your kid's primary sex educator? And if you do not, first, you'd be wise. But second, then you need to take charge of their moral upbringing. And that's why we say talk to them about God's plan for sexuality. Affirm the goodness of being created a boy or a girl. Tell them about godly sexuality within marriage. Give them something to live towards that's beautiful and positive. And then explain how living in a fallen world, sin in our own hearts, but sin in others' hearts have led to the corruption of, of God's gift of sex. And, you know, we can be honest, this can be incredibly powerful, a draw for all time. Kids have been curious about sex. That's part of growing up. They need to understand how this all works. We all have hormones. We have the longings to be bonded with another person or to be loved. But in our culture, in a digitally accessible porn-influenced culture, most of those influences are harmful. And again, kids are encountering this, even if we have filters on, even if we're from a good home, and even if we talk about these things. So really the question is, how do we prepare our kids to walk in a world where they are most likely going to be exposed to the, this either as a, a minor under 18 or certainly older than 18? And we want to prepare them to be uh, healthy adults as well. And so that once they leave our house, they may not put a filter on their phone. Um, and that will be their choice. We want them to understand the whys of our rules, the whys of our concerns. So they embrace that for themselves and embrace a healthy, thriving future. Not to over-sensationalize this topic, but you really make parents especially aware of the grooming and the desensitization that our culture has prepared for uh, pornography to be available to kids at a very young age. You said that 32% of kids who are interviewed 13 to 24, so that's young adults, believe that viewing porn is usually or always morally wrong, which means that nearly 70% don't have an issue with it in their conscience. 70% are just, you know, again, there's the A of accepting that this is normal. And the concern is also that pornography has over the years become more and more violent and more and more sexually degrading. The amount of physical violence, the amount of verbal aggression, it is not good for our brains to be exposed to this kind of thing. And it does not teach our children well how to care for their neighbors and to care for their future potential spouse. Yeah. And to add to that, the Barna research I referred to earlier from 2016, it's all compiled in a book called The Porn Phenomenon. And that's something parents could get online. But one of the things they measured is how are kids, peer groups talking about pornography? It was a very big study. But only 11% of the kids indicated that their peer group spoke about pornography in a negative light. So that's the point that's important to understand is even if you raise your kids in a solid Christian home, they're going to school, maybe even a Christian school where most of their peers think this is okay and think it's awesome, actually. And, you know, we understand in adolescence, all the hormones and the sexual interest all this stuff is happening and kids are trying to figure out what to do with that. Pornography gives a very distorted vision, but the kids, and I've seen this in interview after interview after interview, multiple research projects, uh, teens today think porn sex is real sex. 
they think this is how it is supposed to be. And when you realize, like you said, Stephanie, there is a great deal of physical and verbal aggression, especially toward women, women being called very degrading names, being physically abused apart from the sexuality. There's violent, rough sex that's happening in a lot of these videos that most people would be very uncomfortable with. But kids are seeing this and thinking, this is how I must act. And we see that when kids are sexually active who have been encountered pornography, they act on their partners exactly what they've been trained to do through the pornography they've watched. And that, that can be actually very physically violating, especially for the young women, because these are not healthy or safe sex practices for the most part. So now you've hit on one of the major problems with pornography, but what are some other ways that pornography is especially harmful for teens and the brains of adolescents and their view of how relationships work? Well, it's interesting. We include in our book a quote from Dr. Judith Reisman, um, who's since passed on, but she was a very powerful anti-pornography crusader. A researcher had done a lot of work on this, and she kind of explained our, our current social age like this. She said, our kids are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we think, well, what is that? What is she talking about? Our kids are doing horrible things. No, she said, our kids are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're imitating adult culture that they see around them. And that's how kids socialize. They learn what the adults are doing and they imitate it. And what we see here is now kids are imitating the messages, the attitudes, the philosophies of pornography, and it's having real world consequences. For one, most pornography is set up to be male-dominated action against women. It is not a mutual meeting of affectionate people, whether they're married or not. That doesn't exist in pornography today. Something tender, gentle, something loving. It's almost like combat where you are fighting with the other person or doing something to degrade them. So... What we've seen in the research is kids that are exposed to pornography are less likely to value fidelity or monogamy. They're less likely to want marriage. They're less likely to want children. And if you think about it, almost every era of human history, sex has been associated with children and pregnancy and creating family. And that's why you avoided sex, because if you didn't want a family, you know, if you don't sleep around before you're married, because there's a high likelihood you're going to get pregnant. Pregnancy and children and family have nothing to do with pornography. And so it's almost like this, this is completely eliminated for kids. And, and we have to understand why do people have abortions? Because they don't want the child they've created. Well, pornography is shaping kids and adults to not want children. It's, it's shaping how they behave toward their partners. Pornography is essentially a self-centered activity. People watch it. If they're using it for sexual arousal, they're most likely coupling it with masturbation. And so this is a very self-centered activity, which is incompatible with healthy marital sexuality. And so you see a lot of problems in Christian marriages as well, where someone has brought in porn influence and the spouse is not okay with that. And largely a husband, um, not always by any means, ends up creating that pornographic marriage bed where it should be a godly marriage bed. And it's very self-centered. So there are a lot of real world impacts that 
affect people across ages here. And if people are interested too, of course, obviously read your book and you go into brain science and how pornography affects especially a growing and maturing brain and our hormones, just our, our very biology itself is affected by being exposed to sexually explicit images that we weren't meant to see. Now, Daniel, how does pornography kind of serve as the gateway to other sexual sins, other sexual brokenness? What have studies shown in terms of its correlation with other things? Well, there's actually a lot of research out there. One of the big ones is pornography is one of the main drivers of prostitution and sex trafficking. And I know that since I've been following the issue of sex trafficking going back almost 20 years ago, we have a great deal of awareness in our culture based on what there was 10 years ago. But one of the driving factors of sex trafficking is pornography, and our culture has not accepted that link. And the link is pretty well established in the research. And what they also found is the women that were being trafficked or that were being prostituted, the trauma they felt was much, much worse if what was happening was being filmed. So knowing that it was captured and someone had access to that or was putting it online was more traumatizing to the women than the sex itself. And so we have to understand pornography plays a great role in creating this idea that people are commodities or objects that can be bought, rented, or sold. And this is especially true for college-age men and others who think we can go to a strip club or we can hire a prostitute. The women involved in this are most likely not there by choice. They may have had no other options. And so pornography is really harming people. And this is a global phenomenon, but it is absolutely happening in the U.S. And it's happening with minors. And because they've been so exposed to pornography, many of them aren't even aware that they're being victimized by it. But other things as well, I mentioned abortion. When we create an idea of sex without children and children appear magically as if we don't know how this happened. We don't want those children. And so we take steps to eliminate them. Pornography is a huge driver of divorce. It's almost consistent with divorce. I mean, there's almost no divorces that happen, they say, anymore that don't involve pornography anymore. So it's just a huge driver of marital breakdown. It's a huge driver of not creating family, not starting families in the first place. So the implications are far reaching and, and it's something I would suggest parents talking to their kids and pastors and Christian leaders talking openly about this threat that is facing our society today, just to normalize it and let people know it is okay to talk about these things, especially because we have good news. We have the gospel. We have Jesus who not only, uh, you know, in Matthew 18, he reminds us what God created in the beginning. Being asked about divorce, you know, go, he goes back to the very beginning and says, this is what God created us for. Let's remember that. And certainly through Christ and his action on the cross, all of us have made mistakes. Maybe we haven't lived this out better when we were younger, or maybe we were exposed to pornography. But Jesus is there to help us to overcome that, to put that down, to leave that behind, and to turn over a new leaf and, and to become more Christ-like by the Holy Spirit. So, there's great hope in all of this as well. Yes, absolutely. And you spend actually a majority of your book talking about 
the hope. What are some action plans, you know, some ways that parents can be hopeful, even in the midst of this, uh, you know, we could call it a crisis. And you also make a point in your book to highlight what Philippians 4 says, that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So why is it equally important and maybe even more important than focusing on the dangers to actually focus on the good and for parents to direct their kids to have a gaze toward that which God created as good? Right. That's such a great point, Stephanie. We want parents to lead with the positive. And I think one of the reasons parents feel so fearful and uncomfortable about these topics is because how do I talk about something? Um, you know, if I read this book and I learn all this negative stuff about porn's impact on kids, like, how do I talk about that? Is that going to hurt my kid even bringing it up? And the research says, no, bringing it up will not lead your kids to act out or do something different than they otherwise would. Our kids actually really want to hear from us as parents. They want to understand the world. They're trying to figure out their place in the world. And by giving them this positive vision about who God created us to be, how our human love, especially within marriage, is an icon of the greater love of God for his people. It's, it's a participation in a way of the love of the Trinity, the interior love of God. This is deeply intimate. And this is what God is inviting us to when we die and go to heaven. It's a wedding feast. There's a greater spiritual love awaiting us. But sex is an icon. It's, a, it's pointing us to that greater fulfillment we will feel. And our spouse, no matter how godly your marriage is, our spouses cannot fulfill us or complete us. They are there to be helpers. We are meant to do life together in a beautiful way. Sin does affect that. And so we have grace and mercy and forgiveness in our marriages as well. But we want to hold out this beautiful vision that our kids can live toward. And it starts by self-mastery, controlling understanding our sexuality, and understanding that God's point on sex is not a big no, it's a big yes. It's a big yes for everything he wants for us. That's been abused a little bit. I just have to say this. We're not promising your marriage is going to have great sex if you just save it for marriage. Like There's all kinds of problems that come into this. But spiritually speaking, by living according to the way God set us up and, and the purpose he's given us, we are more in line with his will and we live out and receive the blessings of that. There are no blessings in pornography. There's a momentary thrill, usually followed by shame, secrecy, isolation, and just crushing depression at times because people feel trapped in this cycle. So we want to hold up the blessings for our kids. And it's so important to, to take that approach and understand not all of our kids are going to act the way we wish, you know, I can say for my life, I didn't act the way I wish now. I wish I'd followed God more closely in my sexuality. That's why we forgive one another and we receive God's forgiveness. All of this can be redeemed and it's God's will that it is. 
Well, you kind of hit on a topic that you discuss a little bit more in your book, too, of how, quote unquote, purity culture has kind of done a, a disservice to Christianity in the sense that there's a complete major emphasis on abstinence, which, of course, is God's design until a person is married. But instead of focusing on abstinence, there's been a turn, a good turn, I think, in Christian emphasis on chastity and living a chaste life. And that's what points us to God's good design. And he doesn't put a big no on sex. He puts a big yes on sex, just in terms of, however, here is my design for it. Here are the boundaries. And it is good. In general, if life is lived according to God's design, we are blessed. And that's not necessarily a promise, but these are uh, the guardrails by which God has given us. And we thrive when we live according to God's design. So what are some ways that parents can model this for their children? How can we help each other as a church to do better? Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, this idea of chastity, it's kind of an older word. And you kind of think of Roman Catholics as promoting chastity as one of the virtues. But chastity, I think, might just be understood as the right ordering of our sexuality. Or well, another way I say it is living towards God's plan for our lives. You know, the problem with purity culture was that it was binary. You either were pure or you were no longer pure if you had sexually acted out. And what happened was a lot of kids then felt, I've already acted out, and so I'm not going back to being pure. I might as well just continue in this because it was kind of you know enjoyable anyway. So what we want to give a, a bigger vision for our kids, that chastity is something we live toward all our lives, whether we're single or married, whether we're young or old. As a married man, I still need chaste sexuality because I don't want to treat my wife as an object. The Bible doesn't encourage total sexual license to do whatever you want. I mean, there's still mutual respect and mutual submission in marriage. Loving as Christ loves. And that can instruct us sexually as well. Like God doesn't just take and demand. He offers himself as a gift. And that's a good model for husbands. You know what? My needs will not always be met. My wife may be on her monthly cycle. She may be pregnant. She may not feel good. There could be physical, all kinds of reasons why we're not having sex within marriage at any given time. And so we want to kind of culture our kids into that idea that sex is an important thing, but it's not something we worship and seek out for its own sake. We seek it out because of what it does for us and our spouse in marriage, the bonding and the comfort and the family creation that's part of it. But above all, you know, bringing this out a, a level higher, the one place in this entire world when we're not hearing messages about sexuality is in the church, right? Like this is the, we should be the ones leading. We should be the evangelists on sexuality. Now I know we wouldn't have never talked this openly in decades past. We didn't need to because the culture kind of generally had the same sexual ethic. Keep it within marriage, you know, and not having extramarital affairs, not sleeping together before marriage. That's not the case. And we actually really need to catechize the Christians that are in our churches. They need that guidance because they haven't heard it for far too long. And I would love for parents, for pastors, for other educators in the church and our Christian schools to normalize this talk about sexuality, normalize both the goodness of God and the fallenness of the culture 
and teach people, disciple them how we are to live out our lives in a hypersexualized culture, which maybe not coincidentally, but is exactly what the church was born into in the Roman world of the first century. Very sexually exploitive, very sexually aggressive and, and explicit. And the church addressed these issues head on in the apostolic letters. Jesus talked about sexual morality, Sermon on the Mount and other places. He talked about God's design. So we need to reclaim our Christian heritage on this and teach and guide and then also bring that message of forgiveness and healing through Christ for all who have fallen short. And, and that is a great, great message for this culture. Now, for people who are listening, the opposite of what we want is for people to be discouraged by all this information. So what are one, two, three major points, perhaps, that you want people to take away from our time together? This time can be both a challenge, but I see it as an opportunity. Because our culture, although it's sexually explicit, sexually exploitative, it's not sexually satisfying. And people living according to kind of the, the plan and the design of the sexual revolution are experiencing great, a great deal of heartache, loneliness, and loss. The, the culture's vision of sex is not satisfying. And there's ample evidence. So we have an opportunity to speak into this culture in ways that I believe this culture will listen. If we're talking about sex, now they may not like our message because they've been conditioned against it, but that's the opportunity is to bring that gospel message into the darkest parts of our lives and our culture. And this is one of the darkest ones, sexuality right now. I believe a lot of people are waiting for that hope and that healing, even if they don't yet know Jesus. I believe that this is an opportunity to introduce the gospel right through one of the most important areas of our lives, our sexuality. And again, for us to reclaim our heritage here, Genesis 1 and 2, that's our heritage, right? It's not just Genesis 3 and, and, and then after. Both are part of our heritage. But don't forget Genesis 1 and 2. There is such beauty. God is trying to teach us something lovely and eternal in our sexuality, our, our being created as male and female, and that that sexual diversity between male and female that doesn't you know, exist between two men or two women as well. And there's something to be celebrated and, and, and highlighted there. And just, we're not to walk by fear as Christians. It's okay to say, to be honest, like, I don't know what to do on these topics as a parent or as a pastor, but it's not okay to stay there because there's too much at stake. And too many people, both inside our church and outside our churches really need this gospel message at this moment. And boy, what a blessing that, yes, it's challenging, but we get to, we're called to do it. It's our time. There's such blessing that can come when you reach someone and they, they begin to see what God has in store for them. Well, Daniel, you've given us a great intro into this topic and a great starting point for especially parents as they are navigating this with their kids. How can people who are wanting more, so where first can they find your book and where can they turn to for more resources on this? So the book can be found at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, um, online retailers primarily. And of course, we'd love you to get the book or give it to someone you know who's a parent. But our, our nonprofit, Sexual Integrity Leaders, is really designed to, to support 
equip and collaborate with Christian leaders to promote gospel-centered sexuality in churches. Uh, and so that's something sexualintegrityladers.com might be a resource for folks that want to get more training. There are other groups like axis.org, A-X-I-S.org. They do a lot of parent training, helping parents understand youth culture, and they do some really good work. And one more is a group called Be Broken, and Be Broken has some parent, basically some webinars you can go through online at your own pace, helping parents understand some of these aspects of sexual culture and, and how to talk to kids. So Be Broken does some really good stuff for parents as well. Thank you, Daniel, so much for your time. Again, uh, he is the author, co-author of the book, Treading Boldly Through a Pornographic World, a Field Guide for Parents. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate you uh, digging into this topic. It's a hard one and it's so necessary. So thanks for your courage and leadership as well. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follower subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that discusses the life God has given and the people he has called you to serve right where you are in God's mission.